Good morning, everybody. I'm Kenny. Open to Genesis 4. Let's waste no time. I, I, that, that's that's a favorite hymn. I won't say... I get on my wife, Betsy, all the time because she uses the word favorite all the time. And I'm like, if you use it all the time, then it doesn't mean anything. But I say that with hymns a lot. That is one of my favorite hymns. Um, and one of the lines in, th- in the third verse that we just sang, as awesome as it is to be a ransom, part of the ransomed church of God, forgiven... How awesome is the thought to be one day saved to sin no more? <laughs> I can't conceive of that. I can try, but not one day of my life has come even close to that. And the thought of one day, God finally setting us free from our divided heart is just awesome. I'm thankful for that. There's another line I want us to think about as we look to Genesis 4 this morning. And it was actually a song came to my mind the last couple of weeks as I was studying, and when I heard Jeffrey was going to be leading, I texted him earlier in the week and said, Jeffrey, we need to sing the song, Lord, I Need You. And I found out he was already planning to sing that. So that's, that's what I call service, right? He, uh, um, but the reason was, this was the line that we got to sing that I wanted us to sing. Where sin runs deep, your grace is more. It's just one of those lines. In eight words, you stop and you realize the truth that that conveys. Where sin runs deep, God's grace is more. A couple of weeks ago, Eric made the point that one of the easiest things for us to prove from the Bible is that we have a sin problem, and yet it's one of the hardest things to get us to admit as people is that we have a sin problem, right? So that's why Psalm 32 that we read this morning and Psalm 51 might feel counterintuitive to you that the best thing to do with my sin is to hide it, to stay safe, to keep it behind wraps, not let other people know about it, try to act as if uh, God doesn't know about it, which is impossible. But the opposite is true. Psalm 32 says we do that and, it, and we waste away and the weight of our sin is crushing. On the flip side, if we bring our sin to God and all of its ugliness, we receive grace. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all your unrighteousness. That's not our instinct and our expectation of God, but that's what he says. Where our sin runs deep, God's grace is more. Do you believe him for that this morning? Genesis 4 lays this out. Sin runs deep and it keeps getting deeper and deeper still. And yet, at almost every turn, at every turn, God is gracious in unexpected ways. He keeps showing Cain and then Cain's descendants grace at the point where we would have long since tapped out and said, done. So, three questions I want us to ask, and then we're going to read Genesis 4. I'm going to pray and we'll get after it. Number one, what do we learn about sin from Genesis 4? Second, how do we see God's grace shining against that backdrop of sin just getting deeper and deeper and deeper? And third then, how does this chapter point us forward to Christ? Because it does, right there at the end. Again, there's a pointer forward um, to triumph coming and glory coming and victory coming, and we'll see it. So let me read it, we'll pray and dig in. Genesis chapter four. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Fast forward, they're grown up now. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain was a worker of the ground. 
And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. And then the Lord said to him, not so. (laughs) If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. And then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and he settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. And when he built a city, he called the name of the city after the the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Erod and Erod fathered Mehujael. Mehujael fathered Methushael and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. Ada bore Jabel, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. And Lamech said to his wives, I hear the Tim Allen home improvement. Oh, oh, oh. I can't help it. Ben Bader in first service says he hears Easy E if you know who he is. Anyway, I hear Tim, Tim uh, Allen here and he says to his two wives, Ada and Zilla, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. And Adam knew his wife again. She bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born. And he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Let me pray. 
Uh, Lord, this morning, uh, I pray you would help us see and admit our sin. Um, Thank you for the way the songs and what we've read this morning have encouraged us in that direction, that it's safe actually to to, uh, not hide our sin before you because you're a gracious God. God, I pray you'd help us to be surprised by your grace in this chapter and be reminded that that your grace surprises us in our own life. Um, God, I pray that we would see Christ more clearly, that the the grace of Christ and the the triumph of Christ and the kindness of Christ uh, would be clearer to us than it was when we came in here today. Please do this in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. All right. Here we go. I know I'm going to say this number and you're going to think I'm going to pull an Eric right here. Seven things that we learn about sin from Genesis 4. And we'll get to them all, I promise. So first question, what do we learn about sin? Seven. We're going to touch on these more briefly. I want us to see them all. But number one is this, is that uh, sin is a worship problem before it's a behavior problem. Sin is a worship problem before it turns into a behavior problem. So look at verse three. Here's Cain and Abel. And this chapter begins after the happy announcement that that Eve has has had two sons. It fast forwards and they're adults and they each have their own vocation. And in due season, maybe at the end of harvest, they each bring offerings to God. So it begins with a setting of worship. Each son, externally at least, appears to be giving God thanks and giving God the glory he's due. They each are bringing something that they've been able to produce with God's help and they're offering it back to him as a gift and as an expression of thanks and dependence, right? This all comes from your hand, God, and, and we give this gift back to you in acknowledgement of that. They both bring an offering. But that's where it goes wrong. God rejects Cain's offering. And he accepts Abel's offering. He has regard for it, it says. Apparently, Cain's worship isn't pleasing to God. And Abel's is. So the question is, why? Because probably if we were there, it would have looked much the same. Cain brought some stuff. Abel brought some stuff. And they both offered it to God. But probably the distinction here is seen, at least externally, in the contrast in verses 3 and 4 between Cain's offering and Abel's offering. And that distinction, I think, points to a serious distinction between their two hearts. Notice it says, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. Remember, Moses probably wrote this. Probably the original audience was Israel as they're coming out of their wilderness experience, about to head into the land, and they've been given the law, and they've been given offerings and sacrifices and the ways in which they are supposed to approach God and give him worship. And no doubt they would have heard the firstborn of his flock and the fat portions, and Cain's lack of first fruits would have probably stood out. In other words, Cain brought an offering. Abel brought the first and the best of what his flocks had produced. We get a little help in the New Testament. Hebrews 11 points out Abel's faith and commends, it for, commends him for it. And listen to what it says about his offering. It says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. 
There was something about the nature, the best and first that Abel brought that actually God saw the heart. That was of faith. And God commended that faith as righteous. I think this gets at quite well. Ray Ortland Jr. He says, in other words, Cain threw a tip on the table. But Abel gave his best. Cain gave out of his income. In other words, a little bit of what had come in. But Abel gave out of his capital. Cain made a gesture of thanks, but Abel risked his future growth potential by giving God some of his breeding stock, if you think about it. The best and the firstborn, these are the ones that you'd want to keep and breed to have greater strength. But he actually offers these up. There's faith there. The difference between these two men was tokenism, just sort of checking the box and giving God his due, versus love. And God took it more seriously, took it seriously. God's not honored by our mere formal duty. God's not honored by just checking boxes of religious observance and then moving on into our week. God looks on the heart. I don't don't think we often really consider that. God can see gratitude. Not just the expression of it in what you give, or how generous you are, but he can see the substance of it in your heart. God looks on the heart. God sees contrition. He can see it in your heart. He can see the absence of real contrition over sin in your heart too. God can see your faith. We might be able to fool everyone else. You might have everyone else in this room fooled. I could have all of you fooled. I don't have God fooled. God looks on the heart. And based on what he sees there, he's either pleased or not pleased. A couple of weeks ago, I, I heard uh, Tim Keller uh, give a, an address, a recording of an address he gave to seminary students who were about to graduate uh, at Reformed Theological Seminary. And he said right at the beginning, this is going to be a pretty heavy message. It's three big warnings. And the first one, he said, is, is they're all heading off into vocational ministry, pastors to be in the church. And he says, ministry can breed phoniness. Not just for pastors, That can happen for grace group shepherds. It can happen for Sunday school teachers. For youth core group leaders, it can happen for moms and dads trying to shepherd the hearts of their kids. How? Well, ministry calls on us to serve and point other people to Christ and pray for one another and care for one another. And if our hearts are not abiding in Christ and our hearts are not ministering from a place of being filled up and spill over, then the practice of serving out of that lack, can breed a phoniness. Does that make sense? We're, we're susceptible to this, and we got to be reminded, no, God looks on the heart. Ministry is great, but God looks on the heart. And God looks upon Cain's heart and Abel's heart, and he accepts Cain's, or Abel's offering, and he rejects Cain's. Because sin is a worship problem, fundamentally. Second thing about sin. Uh, sin uh, leads us often to see and treat others as competition and not community. So back in Genesis 2, Jackson was preaching and said that God says the first thing that's not good is that man is alone. 
God made us to be relational creatures, live in community and fellowship, to rely on one another, to trust one another, to meet one another's needs, to support one another, to do life together. And we see sin enters in chapter three and already that communion, that community starts getting eroded, right? Adam and Eve begin to feel shame in front of one another whereas before they were were naked, and unashamed, and now their inclination is to hide. You're not safe, and you're not safe. And they hide from God. You're not safe. And they blame one another. Instead of standing by one another in loyalty, they each take a step away from each other. Well, it's the woman you gave me. Oh, well, I didn't do it. And they start blaming. And community starts getting eroded. They don't see each other as as, uh, community. They see one another as competition. And it gets worse here now. Brother is looking at his other brother as competition for God's affections, it seems. In one generation, it goes from blame and shame to hostility and violence and murder. And notice Cain's response to God's rejection of his offering. It says something, I think, about his heart in giving it in the first place. He offers something to God and God says, that doesn't please me. And instead of him repenting of that, saying, God, what does please you? He crosses his arms and he gets very angry and his face falls and he resents God and he resents Abel for getting God's pleasure. And he broods. We need to identify ourselves with Cain here, I think. We'd like to identify ourselves with Abel, probably, as the victim. We think about times that someone's hurt us or or treated us like competition and wronged us. But we need to start by acknowledging that the Cain impulse is in all of us because of sin nature. That tendency to see everyone else in the room and everyone in the world as competition to me and what I want and what I'm seeking and what I think is best and, 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 and look out for me first. And that's what Cain does. This impulse is in all of us. Jesus was quite clear. He said, you've heard it said that you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Murder, liable to judgment. Angry with your brother, liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Viewing your brother and sister as competition and hating them or being angry against them or resenting them, um, envying them is sin and serious to God. In fact, John in 1 John makes it so clear in case we we still don't get it. He says, anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. He just says it. Not just murderers, anyone who hates his brother. And he says a few verses earlier, anyone who hates his brother is like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. If you've ever been angry towards someone else, held a grudge and nursed it, and thought of ways that you hope that person gets what's coming to them. You curse them in your heart. That's the heart of Cain. We're born into this. We need to identify it and admit it. That impulse might never lead to anything violent physically in your case, maybe just verbally, or maybe you're even good at keeping the words in, but all that gets played out in your mind and God says that is, um, that's murder. 
That evil intention right there is liable to judgment. That ought to sober us. Do you see Cain impulses in your heart? Number three about sin. Oh, not there so fast. Number three, sin is a hidden dragon. It's a hidden dragon. The Lord graciously comes to Cain. Cain's angry. He's pouting and and furious and his face is fallen. And graciously, God comes and he speaks to Cain and he tries to draw him out of it. And the first thing he says is, Cain, your sin is crouching at the door. Notice here something that's different from Genesis 3. In the garden, where does the tempting voice come from? Outside, right? Here comes Satan, and he comes to to Adam and Eve, and he speaks the whispering lies, and he slanders God and convinces them, persuades them to to do what they they would rather do. But here in chapter 4, where does the mutiny come from? Where does the voice of temptation come from? Cain, right? There's no other tempter in this scene. It's just Cain sitting there nursing his anger in his own heart. And God says, sin is crouching at the door. We begin to see sin nature here. That it's bad enough that we have an enemy out there. We've got an enemy. We are our own enemy. Here's our first glimpse. In Ephesians 2, Paul says, we all were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. We were all born spiritually dead. And the way he describes that is going about life, just following the course of the world, which is the prince of the power of the air's course, in other words, Satan's course. We're just following that, living our lives, and we're not off the hook innocent because, well, we're just born that way, Paul says. He says we actually are carrying out the passions of our own flesh, the desires of our body and mind. We're following Satan because we like his tune. And so we're dancing to it because internally, We have desires that are that way. And he says that these desires are crouching in us. In other words, we're all descended biologically from Eve, but we are all descended spiritually from the serpent. We've all got that seed in us. Paul says we are by nature children of wrath. That's what I mean. The the, the sin is a hidden dragon. The seed of the serpent's in us. And crouching at the door is an image like a rattlesnake is what I picture. Something that doesn't take a lot of provocation to get it to strike, right? It's poised to pounce. It doesn't take much to get it to act. And he says, your sin cane right now is poised to pounce. And fourth thing he says about sin here. Let me go back. I love this. I left it out the first service and and, and, uh, my favorite Gandalf line from The Hobbit. He says, I'll do my best Sir Ian McKellen voice. It does not do to leave a live dragon out of your calculations if you live near him. (laughs) But seriously, that's what he's saying to Cain. There's a live dragon near you. It's in you. It's crouching at the door, Cain. And here's what he says even further. Fourth thing about sin, it wants to take you down. Its desire is for you. Or maybe your Bible has a footnote and says your desire, its desire is against you, which sounds opposite, unless you think of for you the way like a saltwater crocodile is for you. It's for you, all right. It wants to devour you. He says this, its desire, sin's desire, is for you, Cain. I think this is countercultural. The prevailing message I hear in our culture is trust your heart. 
Trust your desires. You know what's best. Your desires inside are leading you in the way of happiness and flourishing. Trust your heart, right? That's what we're inundated with. And the Bible comes along and says, no, actually, your heart is deceitful and desperately sick. Jeremiah 17, 9. Who can understand it? God says to Cain, your heart's desire is for you. It actually wants to take you down. Your sin nature is a self-destructive instinct. And even though we feel when we're following what our hearts desire that it's in our best interest, God says, no, no, no. That's part of the deceitfulness of sin. It's taking you somewhere that you actually don't want to go. In Cain's case, related to anger right here, even though, Cain, it might feel so good in your heart to just nurse that anger and it feels so right to justify yourself, he's saying that is not a good place for you to go. That'll destroy you. Stole this quote. Yesterday, Band of Brothers, Scott Rosencrantz, was helping our men think about the command not to complain against one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we were thinking about anger and all the hidden forms of it in the heart. And he shared this quote. This is from Frederick Beekner. Man, this is right on. He says, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come and to savor the last toothsome morsel, both of the pain you're given and the pain you're giving back. In many ways, it's a feast fit for a king. Chief drawback is that what you're wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. Can you relate to that? Have you ever reaped some of those consequences? You've gone with your anger and you've fueled that and let it go and later on come to realize that that's actually devouring you in your heart. That's the graciousness of God coming to Cain and Cain doesn't listen. Your sin nature wants to take you down. Your sin nature wants to destroy friendships. Your sin nature wants to destroy your marriage. Your, our sin nature wants to blow up elder boards and churches. Number five, and our sin nature is not easily mastered. Look at the last thing he says in verse seven. It's crouching, it's out for you, and you must rule over it. Implication, that's not going to be easy. Sin is not easily mastered. In fact, the opposite we find to be true. Sin easily masters me, and it easily masters you. Righteousness isn't our default mode. Eric said a couple of weeks ago, we don't boot up Godward, but quite the opposite. And so we must rule over our sin. One of the things the Bible's record combined with my personal life experience of 45 years is that we all are failures at mastering sin. We might have good days, we might have bad days, but even though we must rule over our sin, we can't. Last two observations about sin. Number six, often our sin nature can incline us to resent God's consequences instead of repenting of our sin. Notice what Cain does. God brings just consequences for his sin and he complains, my punishment's greater than I can bear. It's too much, you're too heavy-handed. He's guilty, dead to rights, of brother murder. And he says to God, God, your consequences are too harsh. It doesn't occur to him that he's still alive to say that. 
Let me ask you this. When you hear the Bible say that the wages of your sin, your sin, is death, is your first thought, that's a little harsh, God. That's overdoing it. Is it to justify your sin and actually view God as maybe not good? Or is your response to be sobered by sin, you say, my sin is worthy of death? And you believe God and understand and repent. See, Cain doesn't do that. He resents God even as the consequences are being handed down. And last thing, number seven, we see where left unchecked, sin increases. Cain goes, goes out from the presence of the Lord and he begins to have children and his children have children and his line is just this picture of sin going from bad to worse until you get to Lamech, who's almost like a Marvel villain. He's like comic book status, evil sounding, right? And here's Lamech and two things it points out. He takes two wives. God has said a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, no S, and the two shall become one flesh. And Lamech says, I'll take two. And then he boasts to his two wives that unlike Cain, I've killed a man for wounding me. He was young, actually. He was a young guy. It was easy for striking me. And he's proud of it. I snuffed out life in which is the image of God and it doesn't even bother me. And in his warped logic, he seems to, to think, oh, if Cain deserved God's protection sevenfold, then I have it 77-fold. God must really be on my side. I mean, it's just twisted. So Genesis 4 is just sin running deeper and deeper and deeper and Cain's line just goes off into darkness. But I want us to see God's grace through this chapter at every turn. Five things we're going to touch down on. Number one, God's grace shines in verses 6 and 7 in his instruction and his warnings to Cain as he's moping and brooding. It's gracious when God comes to us in our sin and he draws the boundaries clearly again, and he urges us to take another path. That's what his law does. That's what his commands do for us. Psalm 25, 8 says, good and upright is the Lord. And look what he does. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. That's gracious of God to come to us in our sin. He comes to Cain and he says, Cain, come this way. If you do well, will you not be accepted? Don't go that way. Sin's crouching at the door that way. Its desire is for you. Come this way. Rule over that. That's gracious that when God calls us by his commands to the right path. Derek Kidner is a commentator from Britain. His Genesis commentary is like this skinny. It's skinnier than most of my New Testament commentaries. He doesn't waste words. And he said this. He says, where Eve had to be talked into her sin by Satan, Cain can't be talked out of his sin by God. He just hardens his heart. Sin just goes deeper. But God's grace is more with Cain. Look at verse 9. Second thing, God's grace shines as he invites a murderer to repent. Cain's murdered his own brother. And just like with Adam and Eve, God doesn't just drop the hammer. He comes in with a question. He's actually inviting a dialogue here. He's still open to where this might go. Cain, where is your brother Abel? The fact that God does not just end him right here should amaze us. 
it tells us God is actually willing to forgive and redeem murderers. Like Michael Mejia, who just shot Officer Boyd two weeks ago in his service two days ago. I, I heard from Eric Twistleman and Phil Watson. It was this beautiful uh, testimony to the saving work of Christ and the power of the gospel even in the face of evil. People, his own children were even able to stand up in that service and, and point to Christ who is gracious enough who would still forgive this man if he were to turn. That's the heart of God that we see here. He comes to Cain, he would forgive a murderer. He would forgive a rapist, an adulterer. Parents who abandon their child. Whatever the list of sins that in your category are the most unforgivable, God is willing to forgive. No sin is so ugly or so numerous that God says, I'm sorry, that's just too much. You know what the one sin that God won't forgive is? If you turn down his gracious offer to be forgiven on the basis of his son's death, if you turn that down, God won't forgive. But other than that, as ugly as it is, as big as it is, as much as it is, you can bring it and God will forgive. It's amazing. But God's grace goes further because God, Cain does not repent at this point. Number three, God's grace shines in the restraint of his anger when Cain lies and denies his responsibility. Where is your brother Abel? I don't know. To God. He says, I don't know. And then he actually shirks off responsibility. Is that my problem anyway? Am I my brother's keeper? And you'd think now the hammer would drop. But even now, God doesn't take an eye for an eye. There's consequences, but even in those, it includes you can keep living, Cain, and even making a living. And number four, God's grace keeps getting brighter, that he gives protection and places his, uh, his sovereign protection over Cain, even when Cain complains. Cain says, consequences are too great. This is too heavy-handed, too harsh, God. And what, what God doesn't do for Abel, he does for Cain. Think about that. Abel's blood is crying to him from the ground. What do you think it's crying? Justice be done. God, where's justice? And God does not avenge Abel. But then he says to the complaining, hard-hearted Cain, I'll put my protection over you. And if anyone else tries to take vengeance upon you for what you did to Abel, I will avenge you sevenfold. What? This is God's grace that's supposed to make us not have a category for it. And number five, we see his grace through the rest of the chapter, incredible common grace upon Cain and all his descendants. Cain gets to enjoy marriage. He has a wife. He has a son. He has children. And his son has sons. He has descendants. He has a city. He's able to flourish. And through his descendants, we see um, cultural advancements like technology and, and, and metalworking and music and the arts and, and animal husbandry and these things that made life better for them. And that's God-given talents and abilities and flourishing. He's allowing to continue for this godless line of Cain who's left his presence. How much more do we see this in our world? Do you see the incredible common grace that's in our world? 
and the, the, the minds and the brilliance and the talents and the resources that God continues to give to people who deny his very existence to develop technologies that save our lives and, and the arts that make our lives beautiful and enjoyable. And all this continues to be enjoyed by billions of people in the world who reject God and don't even know him. God is gracious. And this is all pointing us forward to Christ as we finish here. In this chapter, we basically see round one of the battle that God says is gonna be played out in Genesis 3.15. He says to the serpent, Satan, I will put enmity between your seed and the woman's, your offspring and hers, and he shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. And Genesis 4 is like round one, and Satan comes out swinging and takes down Abel, the innocent son. But right here at the very end, we get a glimpse of hope here. It's not, God's gonna take more than that to take God's seed and his promise down. Adam knew his wife again. She bore a son called his name Seth, saying God has appointed another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. And Seth had a son named Enosh, and people begin calling on the name of the Lord, and there's this ray of hope pointing toward the future that God is going to bring about the promise in 315. One day, there will be one from the woman that will be the snake crusher. Galatians 4 says this, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. That's Christ. That's the serpent killer. And Abel is just a shadow of Christ. Christ becomes the better Abel. Just think of this. Instead of Jesus coming and offering a firstborn of any flock, he himself is the firstborn. He is God's righteous, one and only begotten son who lays down his life as a ransom for many. And it's at the hands of his own brothers, his own people, put him on the cross, say crucify him, and shed his blood. And Jesus' blood cries out, Hebrews 12 says, a better word than Abel's. If Abel says, justice must be served, Jesus' blood says to us, justice has been served. I served it. It speaks that word to God and to you. And I want to ask you this morning, if you are coming to understand and see that you have a sin problem and you've not dealt with it, and maybe you realize, I can't deal with it, that's the good news of the gospel, that Christ has dealt with it. And God graciously offers to you the same sort of forgiveness he would have offered to Cain or to any other sinner. Trust in my son and what he did in your place. I'll forgive your sin. I'll send my spirit into your life so that sin doesn't have to master you anymore, but you can be set free from the bondage of it. You can do that right now in your seat. Talk to the Lord about that. Last thing. Grace three very fast encouragements. Number one, rest easy. If your hope and confidence this morning is in Christ alone, then your offering has been regarded by God because Christ offered it and you're in him. That's how this works. And so this morning, for whatever reasons you may feel unworthy and unaccepted before God, you are as accepted by God right now as you were last week on your best day. Second thing, church, let's fight on. We actually can fight sin. We can be killing sin. We can pray and resist and God answers and helps in time of need and we can look to Christ and we can enlist one another's help. Let's fight sin. 
so that his, his church might shine more brightly. And lastly, let's spread the word. I love Anna and Adam Day, who we're about to send to the Philippines as, as our, some of our newest grace partners, uh, spent a few years while he was in seminary at Sojourn Community Church back in Louisville. And one of the things they told me they loved about Sojourn is weekly they were reminded that the gospel forms our identity in five major ways. We are worshipers now in Christ. We're servants. We're family. Um, we're disciples. And we're witnesses that's what the gospel produces in us. We are made witnesses. 1 Peter 2.9 says that we were brought out of darkness into marvelous light so that we might proclaim the excellency. If you are amazed at God's grace again this morning in a fresh way, can we leave here praying for opportunity to share that with others and not hog it for ourselves? We long to see grace grow in this area that we understand our identity as witnesses and each week uh, we gather to worship so that we might scatter to worship and, and bring more worshipers to God. We pray for that and we'll sing as we close. Uh, Lord, please be forming these identities in us. Lord, make us worshipers from the heart, not just in mere externals. Uh, God, I pray you'd make us disciples, lifelong learners that are hungry to know you more and abide in you through your word and prayer. God, I pray you would make us family, help overturn that sin instinct in us to, to see each other as competition. And I pray you'd make this church, this body right here, a family that loves one another in such a way that it's, it shines in contrast to the world. God, I pray that you'd make us servants, that we'd serve one another like Christ, humbly, putting others' needs uh, before our own. And God, would you make us witnesses. Lord, forgive our, um, our fearfulness, forgive our timid posture in our neighborhoods and our in our office places in our lives lord make us bold because we know grace we want other people to know it we pray it in jesus name amen